And good morning, church. Yeah, there we go. Well, I am excited to be back again today. How many of you got to watch part one or were here for part one last week? Amen. Good, good. Well, we're going to be continuing part two of the Let Her Learn little mini-series here, focusing on women in leadership in the church and in ministry. And we're looking at 1 Timothy chapter 2. And when I first sat down to write this, I, I was thinking about the, the various passages and all of the different details and things I could look at. And, and the Lord just said, focus in, in, in 1 Timothy 2. And really, that really is the, the crux of, of how and, and why women get prohibited from leadership positions, teaching positions, or, or preaching, or, or pastoring within the local church. And so I thought what I would do is, is walk you through 1 Timothy 2, show you that the proof text of 1 Timothy 2.12 is not what we should do with the Bible. In fact, we need to look at the historical context, the biblical context, what, what these words are actually meaning in the context. And so that we can pull a, an actual application that is honoring of the text, not of honoring our own presuppositions and, and assumptions into the text. Amen. Because we need to realize that the Bible was written for us, not to us, that we are not the original audience of the Bible. When Paul is writing this letter to Timothy, he isn't thinking of, of the Adventure Church in Draper, Utah, while he's doing this. While the, the, the principles are universal, there is practical application, and we need to be able to know what is being applied practically so that we can pull universally. Does that make sense? So let me just recap a little bit on where we're at, because the two main themes of 1 Timothy, one is it's a letter of correction. Right? Paul is writing to Timothy about issues and problems within the church of Ephesus so that they can be corrected. And the second is that the, the main corruption within the Ephesian church is around false teaching and deception. That 60% of this letter alone is written on account of the fact that there's false teaching and deception within the Ephesian church. And Paul is put into places, can a key components to help stop that spread of deception. We read what's called the, in the thesis statement here, 1 Timothy 1, 3 through 7, he says this, as I urged you, talking to Timothy, when I went into Macedonia, stay there in Ephesus so that you may command certain people not to teach false doctrines any longer or to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies. Such things promote controversial speculations rather than advancing God's work, which is by faith. The goal of this command is love, which comes from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Some have departed from this and have turned to meaningless talk. And, and we talked about last week how this meaningless talk is mentioned here. It's mentioned in other places as nonsense. That this meaningless talk, this nonsense is, is directly tied to, to the false teaching and deceptions. That, that Paul is looking at false teaching and deception as just pure nonsense. In fact, the word there is, is the word for babble. It's just babble. It doesn't mean anything. They want to be teachers, these false teachers and deceivers. They want to be teachers of the law, but they do not know what they are talking about or what they so confidently affirm. So this is the reason why Paul is writing this letter. Everything needs to be filtered through this. And in fact, what we read in First and Second Timothy is that the women in particular were targeted for the false teaching and deception. It says in 2 Timothy 3, 6-9, it says, They, speaking of the false teachers, are the kind who worm their way into homes. Now, this is important because as the Ephesian church was, was a series of house churches. They didn't have a mass gathering. They were micro churches, house churches, what we might even consider community groups today. 
meeting across the city. And so you have these false teachers worming and conniving their way into homes and to gain control over what, it, what Paul says is, is gullible women. But really it's, it's this foolishness, this, this sense of nonsense. Even, it even can be translated as silly women who are loaded down with sins and are swayed by all kinds of evil desires. And, and does that mean that all women are, are gullible? All women are swayed by evil desires and, and, and are loaded down with sins? Of course not. He's speaking about a particular situation, what's going on in Ephesus. And he says these false teachers are targeting this people group. And these, these people are always learning, but never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. And then he uses an example from the Old Testament of, of two people who opposed the truth in the time of Moses. And then in 1 Timothy 5.13, it says they, they, these, uh, these rich young widows who were one of the main targets of these false teachers because one, they, they owned their homes. A rich young widow would own their home and there wasn't this, this, uh, this man around to, to kind of boss them around as the culture would, would show. And this, what's called the pater familias, this all-powerful uh, husband or father. So they had control of their own money. They would, they would get in the habit of going uh, or being idle and going about from house to house. And not only do they become idlers, but they become busybodies who, again, talk nonsense, saying things they ought not to. So we have rich young widows being targeted by false teachers and deceivers who are then using the, the, the spread of the, the widows into the house churches to spread their ideas. In fact, historically, we see things like Gnosticism, the, really the, the first real opponent to the Christian faith comes out of Ephesus. We see Judaizers, we see all kinds of different ideas and concepts. Ephesus is right in the middle of the Roman Empire on a crossroads between East and West. And it's rich, it's very, very rich. You can go look at the archeology span today, the homes there are still immaculate. 2,000 years later. I mean, the Christian faith is coming into Ephesus and it's causing a lot of disruption in the economy even. Acts talks a lot about that as well. And this spread of false teaching is not, is not due to women ontologically, that, that women have some kind of a persuasion to be more deceived. They are uneducated. As we're going to see in 1 Timothy 2, 11 through 12, it says a woman should learn in quietness and full submission. And and when I first read this, and my background is, is in the classics, in Greek and Latin, later in Hebrew, getting my master's, that was the first thing that stood out to me. That was the first thing that the most radical statement that Paul makes in chapter two is this. A woman should learn in quietness and full submission because in the historical culture of the time, a woman was not allowed to learn. In fact, they thought it was dangerous to teach women. One writer even says that it, it's dangerous to teach a woman to write. It's like giving poison to an asp, a snake. Aristotle says that women were made to be ruled. Even the, even the Jewish traditions, the Jewish uh, Jerusalem Talmud would, would tell women not, that, it, that it, it would be better to burn the Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament, than to, to let a woman learn it and teach it. So what Paul is saying here is extremely radical because he realizes that in order to stop the false teaching and deception, the women have to learn. They have to learn the truth of the gospel, the truth of the faith, the things that are ethically are ethical and virtuous of a Christian lifestyle because Paul is always so fixated on the witness 
how do we not corrupt the witness to the world? And by having half of the body of Christ going and, and causing deception within Ephesus and false teaching, it's causing a bad witness. It's, it's causing an ethical and in virtues of a Christian. Which is why he goes on to say, I do not permit a woman to teach or to assume authority over a man. She must be quiet. And, and that, that ability to that authentain there is the word authority. And I talked about it last week, how there's about 20 different ways to translate that. The debate will always go on. But you look at the history of the word, it means murder. It means suicide. In the Latin Vulgate, which is the first real Latin translation of this text, it's the word dominari, domination, master. And so what's causing is these these puffed up, deceptive women are going in and they're mastering and dominating people in the church. False teaching will root at its core a sinful nature in us that wants us to dominate people. And so Paul isn't speaking about authority as we would see authority today. The the word exousia in Greek, or the word huperoke, which he uses a few verses above, that's the normal sense of authority. That's the authority that Jesus says all authority has been given to him in in heaven and on earth. That's that's a legit authority. This is an abusive authority unethical and virtuous authority that is, that is mastering another human being, which no Christian should ever do. In fact, Jesus says this in Matthew. He says that the Gentiles lord over themselves and they exercise authority over themselves. And what does he say next? Not so for you. Not so for you. It is not a Christian ethic to dominate and master somebody. It's because they haven't been educated. And so that brings us into the text today. And one thing too I want to hit on is, is before I go forward, is that the imperative, the, the command in this verse is to let women learn. That is the only command in this passage. The, the, the I do not permit is, is based off of the word epitrepo. It's a first person singular verb, which means it's never used universally. There's not one case where you can look up every single time this word is used in the New Testament, it is never meant for universal command. Paul uses universal commands later. He doesn't use it for this passage except for the women must learn. So we have to look at this passage through the concept that Paul is talking about false teaching, deception, and that women have to learn as we all do. It's not about X and Y chromosomes. It's not about a womanness and manness. It's about learning and being discipled so that the fruit of that is not unethical and virtuous Christian behavior, domination and false teaching and deception. You guys on board with me here? You guys follow me? So then Paul goes into what we're going to talk about today. He talks about, he uses an analogy. And I want to spend a little bit of time on this, on this analogy because it's really important that we get what he is saying here. He says in 1 Timothy 2.13, For Adam was formed first than Eve. What does it mean to be formed by God? What is Paul referring to here? And, and let me just briefly kind of divert into the hierarchical world here a little bit. Because when you read this, our first mindset is, there must be some sense of superiority to Adam. 
they must be talking about the authority portion, that due to the authority, Adam was created first and then Eve. In fact, there's a lot of, uh, of people who prohibit women in, in leadership and, and teaching that will go to, to Genesis as they should, but they use words like uh, in Genesis 2.18 where it says, the Lord God said, it's not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him, but for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So they take the word helper to mean it's some kind of a subordinate position under Adam. In fact, the problem with that interpretation, though, is that the word helper there is, is based off the word ezer. What does the psalm say our help comes from? Do you realize that same word is used for the Lord? That does the Lord somehow subordinate to us? Is he somehow subordinate to Israel? It's not consistent with the way it's applied. What Helper there is talking about is that there's finally, finally for Adam, you can imagine this, he's been all alone with a bunch of animals for who knows how long, and finally there's someone like him. I've been watching the show Alone with my wife. You guys ever see that show where they go and live off in the wilderness for a certain amount of time? It's a pretty good show. You should watch it. But it shows, like, most of the time, they don't crack over the, the lack of food or things. It's they're alone, and they need other people. This is a, a perfection of humanity. Woman coming along, man, is how it should have always been in partnership, in companionship, in perfection. That's why marriage is the next verses that, that come after this. So there is no sense of, of male, support, or male um, superiority found in Genesis 2 based off of that, or, or even naming the animals. In fact, Adam naming the animals is often used as some kind of sense of authority that Adam had, but the Lord is really using it to show him that he needs he needs a partner. He needs a helper. He needs a companion. He need, however else you want to say that. He needs someone like him. And then often, too, we see 1 Corinthians 11 as cited as a place of, of hierarchy that because Adam was formed first and Eve shows that Adam has some kind of an ontological, uh, which just means that he was inherently created superior in, in one way or another for, for authority. And you often hear this, 1 Corinthians eleven three. but I want you to realize that the head of every man is Christ and the head of every woman or is man and the head of Christ is God. You guys have all read that before? Have you guys all read that? Now, as an English speaker, we see that and go, it must mean headship, right? It must mean lordship. It must mean authority of some kind, but that does not give us the proper interpretation for the word head in, in Greek. The word head there is kephali. It just merely means like a, a head. That's, it, that's what it literally means. And it's often metaphor for source or origin. In fact, 1 Corinthians 11 is all about how women and women should properly prophesy and pray in the local church. It talks about head coverings, and, and Paul uses this as an example for, for people to have propriety, that we should be respectful, that you know, the women shouldn't dress immodestly, when they do this, because of the angels, he says. But we see this as meaning creation, or out of kind of an origin or source, because at the very end of the passage, in 1 Corinthians 11, it says this, Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. They are mutually dependent upon each other. 
For as woman came from man, so also man is born of woman, but everything comes from God. That word ek is a place of origin. And so he's making a, a sandwich here, but between these words, he's saying creation, all things came from God. All things came from God. We're mutually dependent. We're mutually dependent on each other's gifts. We're mutually dependent on each other prophesying and praying. It's equality, not hierarchy, that we find in 1 Corinthians 11. We just don't see it with these proof texts that are often thrown out there. And that's what I'm trying to to show you guys today is that we can't keep throwing these proof texts out that are subordinating half the body of Christ, okay? We have to understand what these texts actually mean. You know, we see kafale again when it's relation to the body. We, we do not see the word kafale used anywhere in the Greek literature as leadership. Nowhere in secular Greek literature is this ever used as, as authority or headship, as we would maybe view it today in our terminology. Think about this from a, from a marital perspective for a minute. Ephesians 5.20 says, Ephesians 5.21 says that we should submit to one another out of reverence for Christ, that the man is the head of the wife. So often we've taken that as a sort of headship. But what that's actually talking about relation to the body is that it's a source of, of love and nurturing and caring. That you imagine a, a kafali was often used as the beginning of a source of a, of a river draining down into a valley. And so husband, it's, it's more of a, are you nurturing? Are you caring? Are you saf- self-sacrificially loving your wife? Are you in mutual submission with each other? Because the word submit that we get in 522 is not in 522. It's in 521. It's borrowed from the verse before it. This is why it's so important to learn Greek. <laughs> it's, it's why it's so much fun. So we see that also with Christ. Christ is the, the nurturer, the caring, the lover of the church. We get poured out by him and from him. So Paul is making a connection there in the household. It's never meant headship. It's never meant authority within the New Testament. In fact, some people will cite the, the Jewish uh, Septuagint, which is the Old Testament in Greek. And they'll, they'll cite a few places where kafali is, could be used as authority and headship. And I'll say, yeah, I mean, three out of 180 times is a lot. Out of all 180 times it's used, only three times could you even argue that there's some kind of authority or headship argument. The rest of the time it's not. It's not the normalcy. In fact, if you were a Corinthian reading this, you wouldn't have any idea about that. Paul's using it the way the Greeks used it so they can actually apply it. Even John Calvin says this. He says this about the hierarchical standpoint of this. He says, the reason which Paul assigns that woman was second in the order of creation appears not to be a very strong argument in favor of her subjection. For John the Baptist was before Christ in order of time and yet was greatly inferior in rank. In fact, we see that throughout all the Old Testament. King David was the youngest of the sons right? Jacob was younger than Esau. In fact, Romans 9 talks about this. 
And so it's not consistent. We have to make sure that our applications and our interpretations of the Bible don't make Paul look like he can't interpret the Bible, okay? If our interpretations are at contradiction to his, we're probably wrong, okay? So let's, let's, let's get in line here with what the text is actually saying. And it's not a hierarchical standpoint. I just cannot see it. So what is Paul talking about? If Adam was formed first, what is he talking about? Well, he's using an analogy to back up his point. And it's important to look at what it means to be formed. Okay, not from a, a hierarchical standpoint, as we just looked at, but what he's actually talking about in the context, which is about the importance of learning so we're not deceived. Deception leads to false teaching. False teaching leads to an unethical and virtuous Christian outlook, which can affect the witness. And that word formed is often used for a purpose. It's, look at Romans 9 again. He only uses it in these two places. He uses it here and in Romans 9. And in Romans 9, he uses it as the potter and the clay are formed for a particular purpose. A particular purpose. And so Adam was formed for a purpose. And that word there that he uses is, is it's, it's based off of the word plasso. Plasso. And it's actually in the passive voice, if you're familiar with the passive voice. And that should give an immediate reaction in our minds if we know the Greek grammar that he's talking about a metaphor. And when Paul uses a metaphor or when this word plasso is used as a metaphor, it actually means teaching and instruction in Greek. We see Plutarch use the same thing. He, in Plutarch, he's talking about Cicero, the great orator of the Romans, and he uses the same word that, that plasso to talk about how he was trained in the ability to speak and speak powerfully in oratory. And then in Plato, when he, in, his, in his work, The Republic, it talks about how important it is for the, the, the young men of the Republic to be trained in, in the stories so that they can speak well and have good spirits of the stories of the past. So we have examples of, of when this is used as a metaphor for instruction and building up and equipping. So when we see that Adam was formed first, what we're seeing was Adam was instructed, built up, and formed first for a purpose. And Eve wasn't created yet. That's important to the story, okay? And for, in Genesis 2, 15 through 17, it says, The Lord God took the man, put him in the garden of, of Eden to work it and take care of it. There's a purpose. And the Lord God commanded the man, You are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat from it, you will certainly die. Eve wasn't around to hear this portion of the story yet. This is a direct command to Adam, who was formed first in the chronological order of things. Adam represents those who have come before us. Adam represents those who've been instructed and discipled before us. Again, get the idea of, of, of women and gender and all of that out of, the, out of this text, okay? It's not what he's talking about. He's talking about deception and false teaching. How do we stop that? He says, Adam represents those who have been trained and, and have come before us. And then 1 Timothy 2.14, it says, And Adam was not the one deceived. It was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. Or you, the word there is transgressor. Have you ever asked yourself why the serpent went after Eve and not Adam? 
Was it some kind of ontological reason the woman was weaker for some reason or another? There's nothing in the text to, to give that at all. Genesis 1 and 2 is all about how both ruled, both blessed, both were mutually uh, equal in every single way. There's nothing to indicate from the Bible that, that Eve was somehow inferior in discernment and rank. What we do see, though, is Eve was instructed or lacked of instructed by Adam. So why did the serpent go after Eve and not Adam? Adam had learned directly from God. He was trained, equipped, and learned directly from, from the Lord. The serpent waited for the new creation to come along who he could deceive and question what God had said. Isn't that what he does today? How many of you were new believers and you felt like, boy, the, the world just got that much harder? It was that much harder to entangle the mess. Did God really say that? The enemy goes after our young. That's what he does. He tries to spoil what God has planted. So if you read Genesis 3, 1 through 7 and 13, it says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord had God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, you, We may eat from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat from the tree that is in the middle of the garden and you must not touch it or you will die. Now, notice how that's a little different than Genesis 2. Her idea was, was a little bit different than what God actually told Adam. And the serpent takes advantage of this. He says, but God did say, you must not eat from the tree that is in the middle of the garden and you must not touch it or you will die. And he says, you will certainly not die. The serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And when Eve took that, she also took it to Adam. The deception was spread through Eve to, uh, to, to Adam. And she says later, the serpent deceived me and I ate. What Paul is talking about here is the, the transmission of information when we're not trained, when we're not formed in the way that he is speaking here. That Adam was formed first, therefore the serpent bypassed him and went right to the new creation and Eve and deceived her so that she could get to Adam. Again, there's nothing ontologically wrong with Eve or somehow she usurped the authority of Adam. That is nowhere found in this text. Paul is using it for the importance of, of learning and being disciples so that we don't fall into deception. So we don't spread false teaching and deceptions among the ranks of the church as what's happening in Ephesus. So Eve represents the ones who are deceived. In this case, the women of Ephesus. He's using the connections in Genesis to make a point. These false teachers in Ephesus represent the serpent or those who are the deceivers. Did God really say that? Let me promise you wisdom, which is very Gnostic. Let me promise you knowledge. Let me promise you all kinds of, of good things that, that appear good. But in reality, they cause deception and transgression, breaking of the command of God. And through that, we see judgment, right? We see we see the fall of mankind. Genesis 3.16 says, the Lord says that because of, of this, this, this sinful action, I will make your pains and childbearing very severe. 
with painful labor. You will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. Guys, this isn't God commanding this. So often this verse is taken to say this is God's command. This is a broken, sorrowful God talking about the repercussions of sin. He's saying, you broke this relationship. This is what's going to happen. It's not a prescribed command of God. And, and if that was the case, you should not remove any thorns from your garden because that's the next verse. And you should take no medications while you're in, 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 in child labor, which was actually the thought back probably 50 years ago. The woman's desire changes because of sin. That word there is teshuka. It's a fun word to say in Hebrew, teshuka. But it means that your desire will no longer be for the Lord, but for your husband. It's where patriarchy is born. Not out of a command, but out of a sorrowful, fallen state of humanity. In fact, this isn't the only place where Paul uses this story to to, to show that it's, it's deception, not a problem with women, okay? 2 Corinthians 11.3 says this, but I am afraid that just as Eve was deceived by the serpent's cunning, your minds may somehow be led astray from your sincere and pure devotion to Christ. Paul uses the same example in Corinth. He's not talking about manness and womanness. He's talking about deception and how we should stomp out deception and false teaching in the church. He's using Eve as an example of those who are deceived and how the judgment and the terror and the, the sorrowful sin that occurs through that and how important it is that we are formed, that we are taught, instructed, built up, discipled, which is directly linked to that word learn. When it says that women must learn that's the, the, the same word we get the word disciple. So we see formed and learned connected within the grammar to show how important it is to learn, how important it is to be formed so that deception and transgression and false teaching do not enter the church. This analogy shows that, that those who were trained and equipped first have a responsibility to train and equip the new creations. That if you're first in line, you're responsible to form the back behind you. That's what discipleship is, is it not? Aren't we called to make disciples? No? Maybe? Yeah. Okay. You guys are awake? Good. And false teachers will, will seem to target those who are least mature and built up. False teaching will always seem more profitable if you're un sure or unbuilt up in what it is that God actually desires. So it's, so Paul, when he, when he talks about this, he's not talking about, again, X and Y chromosomes and why women are, should be subjected under husband or husbands or, or men. He's talking about the importance of learning before you teach learning. So you're not dominating and mastering other human beings. In this case, the men, which leads to anger and dispute, as it talks about earlier in chapter two. And he uses the analogy, Adam was trained first. And Adam was not the one deceived. It was the woman deceived that led to transgression. He went after the new creation. 
one of my buddies said it best. He says, the, the devil doesn't, doesn't change his hand. He just changes his fingernail polish. I thought that was good. It's the same game. He doesn't mix it up. He just changes the way it looks sometimes. And this gets us into the, the pivotal point here. This is the redemption that comes next. He says, because of this deception and things like that, there could be judgment. And he goes into 1 Timothy 2.15, but she will be saved through the childbearing. There's a direct object there. The childbearing if she continues in faith and love and holiness with self-control. That word saved through. So that's the tie. Dea. 100% of the time it's used saved through Christ in the New Testament. Not one example where it's saved through deliver, redeemed. In fact, Sadestatai is only used once as deliver, and it's John, or it's Jesus on the cross crying out, deliver me from this. It's always used as pointing to Jesus. He's using, again, the analogy of the judgment of the woman and the childbearing to point to Jesus in the childbearing event. It's used 106 times and 96 times it means saved and 100% times it means saved through Jesus Christ. The childbearing, again, is a direct object. It's talking about the childbearing, not child rearing. I mean, you're not saved if, you're, if, if you just rear children, okay? Sorry. It's linking itself to the childbearing promise found in Genesis 3. It's called the proto-evangelism. It's the, the first sign of hope in the same chapter where the fall of humanity has just occurred. God says this to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. He's calling to a redemption in Jesus that there will be an offspring Paul calls it a seed of Abraham. The promise that there's a way out of deception and false teaching if you look towards Jesus. Look towards not just childbearing, but the childbearing event. That there will be a seed who will crush the serpent's head. At the same time, it will strike his heel and kill him. This is the the first sign we get of hope, of redemption, that this curse, this, this judgment will be redeemed through the childbearing event of Jesus Christ being born into the world and what he will do on the cross. And then it comes back around to the idea of, of ethics and Christian behavior, something that Paul has hit on the entire two chapters. Calls us to holiness, love. Doesn't call us into vanity or in virtues or, or ignorance as, as is happening in Ephesus. He points them to faith, a, a central to salvation, which is how we are rooted in Christ. For we are saved by grace through faith. Love, a central characteristic of a Christian lifestyle. It redeems the mastery and domination of authentic. Holiness. This is in Paul's the inevitable work of the Holy Spirit. That's what Jesus has done is he's brought in this time of holiness that's cleaned us out, ripped out 
our selfish desires and put inside us a place of holiness to God. He calls us blameless and holy in Ephesians. And then propriety, it's again a a, a Christian ethical virtue of respect to those around us. That we look to others as more important than we do ourselves. Respect those people. Don't cause division and disputes and anger. Be in prayer. So God is, is, is redeeming us through this. He's talking about the deception Ephesus. He says, guys, just focus in on who the childbearing event was and how you are saved through that event and what that means. Don't fixate on the false teaching and deception. Fixate on who Jesus is and what he has done. First Timothy Two is, is about correcting what was broken by these false teachers. Correcting what was broken by the deception in the garden. We see false teaching leading to deception. Deception leads to transgression. Transgression leading to judgment. Which we are then redeemed in Jesus Christ. This is a good word. This is not about telling young girls that they can't be teachers and preachers. This is about telling young girls that they have been saved and bought by a price. And to go share it. To learn it so that you can go tell the world about it. This is an important word because half the body of Christ doesn't feel like they can do that. In some circles. Or they can only do certain things. But I'm come to tell you that the Bible does not teach that, girls. It talks about the warnings of deception and false teaching. And that you've been saved through Jesus Christ. In fact, Jesus was the only rabbi who raised women up to a place of elevation with men in learning. Again, it was him who spoke with the woman in John 4 at the well. She asked questions. She was like, why are you even talking to me? And he told her who she was, who he was. She's the first person to get that. And what did she do? She told everybody about it. The fact that Philip goes up there after the Holy Spirit and that there's Christians in Samaria is because of that. Mary learned at Jesus' feet. She was discipled. By Jesus. You think she just sat on that? She spent her life just saying, I'm so glad I learned all that information just to not do anything with it. No, she shared it. She taught it. I'll tell you this and then I'll end up. Romans is one of the most sophisticated theological books of the Bible. I have a hundred questions about Romans. Who taught it first? Phoebe did. The one entrusted with the letter is the one who would have been the one asked about the letter. Paul gave it to Phoebe to take to Rome. Paul raised up and elevated women to teach. Priscilla taught Apollos in her home. God's got great things for you. He has called you to do great things. Who cares what people say? 
God says, go. And we're here to champion you. Men and women together, as Genesis was, 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 we were created for that. To walk together for the purpose of seeing people saved. So you stand for me. This is a tough message. A lot of people aren't going to like this message. That's okay. Maybe you don't like this message. That's okay. But it's time to respond to this message. Because women, you can raise your hand if you, if you want to or not, but how many of you have been told you can't teach or preach in the local church? Yes. It's not rooted in the Bible. Can we just bow our heads for a moment, please? This is completely between you and the Lord. This is an opportunity to turn away from this false teaching of of prohibiting women. We got to stop doing it. So if, if you want to repent of that, just raise your hand. Give it to the Lord. Say, I'm going to be a champion of those people who God has called into leadership and into place of teaching. If you want to be a champion, raise your hand. If you want to be someone who champions our women, our sisters, our mothers in Christ, raise your hand. Amen. The Lord destroyed all these social cultural foundations at the cross. He made it complete level filled for every single one of us as sinners to come to him. He poured out his spirit on both men and women. It's not us to decide who gets which gift. He's poured it out. All we are to do is disciple And I'm calling us to let her learn. Let her learn. Let her be discipled. Let her walk out in discipleship the calling that God has put on their lives. Father God, I just pray that this message will reach hearts and minds. Lord, that we will not proof text the word of God any longer to try to fit our own agendas, our own presuppositions our own assumptions. But let the text speak for itself in its own context with universal principle. Father, forgive us when we do that. Forgive us when we take your word out of context. Forgive us for for trying to oppress half the body of Christ, even unknowingly. Lord, I pray that today will mark a new day for those women who have been called into teaching into leading, who felt that they couldn't do it because someone told them they couldn't. That someone was not you. Lord, I pray that this message will reach the ears and hearts of men and women alike 
so that we don't work with one arm tied behind our backs any longer. That we walk free and liberated knowing that you have empowered us to share and teach the truths of the faith to all. Lord, help us to live not mastering and dominating one another, but serving one another. Not lording it over and exercising authority as Jesus says the Gentiles do, but serving humbly in humility with one another as you have designed it to be. Lord, thank you for what you have done, that you came into this world and were radical in your teaching. Lord, thank you for all that you have saved and all that you are renewing. As we read in Isaiah 61, all of these destroyed pasts, these ruins, Lord, I think this is a ruin that needs to be rebuilt. The prohibition on women in leadership and teaching needs to be destroyed so that women can finally be free to live out what you have called them to do. So give them boldness, give them confidence, give your church, the people, boldness and confidence as you walk out what you have for us, what you have poured into us. Thank you, Jesus. In your name, amen. Amen. Thank you. God bless. Sorry I went long. Love you guys. Go walk out what God has called you to do.